Friends, you are sinners without hope in this world. And your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, came to earth to live a perfect life that you could not live. And he died as a substitute for you on the cross so that he could be the perfect requirement of the law that you cannot be. So that the infinitely holy Father in heaven, when he now looks at you by your faith in Jesus, he sees you perfect and spotless just like Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Friends, if you have a Bible, would you please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're beginning a new series in 1 Corinthians. This is our third week in it, and 1 Corinthians is about learning to apply the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in every area of life. The entire book of 1 Corinthians focuses on how to apply the gospel, and in doing so, it covers relevant issues that you and I have thought often about. It shows us how to maintain unity in the local church amidst a very divisive era, and it provides practical principles for you to grow in your Christian life. And today, Paul is going to teach us that unity in the local church is a prize that Christians must be willing to fight to maintain. Divisions will emerge, and if you assume unity... If you assume that we are all on the same page and you just let divisions happen, then we become a church that needs rebuke and exhortation as Paul steps into the life of this young church. We have to fight for unity together in the local church. And you fight for it by keeping the focus on what Paul admonishes us to do this morning, on the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul's point in this passage is in one sentence is the cross of Christ must be central to maintain Christian unity. And if you're willing and able, let's stand together and I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 1, verses 10 down through verse 17. Please hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please, Father, would you open our hearts as we look at this important passage in your word? Would you change us by it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 9, which says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his dear son, Jesus Christ. And the very end of chapter 15, bookmark the content of what Paul's argument is. And we begin today moving into the bulk of his argument. And chapters 1 to 4 speak of the unity that he fiercely defends in the local church context. In the Greek, there is an adversative conjunction that begins the sentence. And in our English Bibles, it's set off by a paragraph. You don't see it in the English translations, but it's the word day. It means now or but to set apart what he says in verse 9 with what he begins to say in verse 10. So you might read it now. I appeal to you, brothers. Okay, I got the niceties out of the way. Thank you. I'm thankful for all of you. Now for the business. Now I appeal to you. Appeal is the word that can mean exhort. It can mean encourage. It can mean to ask. It can mean to plead. It can mean to beg. Now I beg of you. I plead with you. I exhort you. Please pay attention. Here it is. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The same word for comforted is the word appeal that he uses here. Would you be comforted into the gospel by giving your attention to this? Hear me. And notice also that he, he affectionately calls them brothers. I appeal to you, brothers, Adelphoi. Paul uses the term brothers more than twice as much as he uses it in any other book of the Bible. For the Corinthians, a church that had forgotten that they were family. 39 times in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, brothers, brothers. You'll hear it all throughout it. And when you hear me say brothers, think brothers and sisters, because he's talking to everyone that's reading the letter. Paul appeals to the relationship. Only in Romans and 1 Thessalonians, he says brothers like 19 times. That's the, that's the closest second place there is. He just overindulges that word throughout the book to say you are family. And remember in the first century church, people were being persecuted. Certainly by the time the second and third century around uh, came, it became even more pronounced. But people were persecuted by both pagans and Jews who saw brothers and sisters coming together to worship. And they called themselves family. And when brothers and sisters married each other, husband and wife, they called each other brother and sister in the Lord, the outside world looked at the Christian church and thought, they're incestuous. So the word brothers is weighty. It's, it's, it's heavy. He just says, man, you're family. 
And so as I speak the message this morning, look around you and see people like you are brothers and sisters together. He has called us out to be one new body. Every good Jew and most of the God-fearing Gentiles would know Psalm 133. Oh, how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Certainly Paul had that in mind when he wrote this. For while they are in fellowship together, there are cliques that are brewing. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, no schismata. There's no schisms. There's no divisions. The word schisms doesn't mean like different sects of religion or Christianity. They're all in the same church. They're eating the Lord's Supper together. They're fellowshipping together. They're, but they had broken up into little cliques and little groupies. Some were Paulites. Some were Apollosites. Some were Peterites. Some were Jesusites. They had all decided who their favorite preacher was. And they were deciding to divide based upon their preferences. So Paul says, I appeal to you, number one, that there be a no divisions, verse 10, if you're a note taker, no divisions. And Paul goes on to mention the whole name of our Lord in the text. Listen, that there be no divisions. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of Jesus, that all of you agree, no. By the name of the Lord, that all of you agree, no. By the name of Christ, no. Paul gives the whole name of our Lord as though he's summoning all the authority given to him. I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. Paul appeals to the name above all names to say, would you listen, your brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you become co-heirs with him. He has given you everything as your elder brother. And next, Paul looks for the local church to agree, to legate. It's the Greek word that means to say the same thing. We want you to share a common confession. Your common confession is, oh, we prefer this preacher. We prefer, that's not your common confession. You like this podcast or you listen to this. No, your common confession is we confess the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question becomes, will agree uh, or be united, Paul, about, about what? Well, he says that we want you to be united in the same mind. Be, be united in the same mind. You see that in verse 10. And then he says, and also be united what? In the same judgment. Be united in the same mind. Verse 10, C, be united in the same judgment. What do those mean? To be united in the same mind means to be united with the same worldview, the same frame of mind. Whether you're raising your children or you're picking an investment option or you're deciding what to use car to buy or you're trying to decide on a career or you're trying to figure out how you're to reconcile, you do so as a Christian with the same gospel worldview that says that your identity is fixed in the heavens and that you are his. And that, yes, he changes your behavior over time, but because he has first changed your heart and he has given you a new name and you are to be of the same frame of mind. And secondly, you are to be of the same judgment, which means that you are to have the same opinion. Oh, great. You mean we have to have the same preferences? 
No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you are to be of the same opinion as to what the most important thing in this room is. You are to be of the same opinion that it is the cross of Christ that unifies you. And if there is to be a division in this church, it needs to be a division based upon the finished work of Jesus. Not about the preferences of local leaders. It's the cross of Christ. We are to agree, friends, about the centrality of Christ and his cross, and that is the only thing over which we are to divide. And that is the power of our unity. That is what it says down in verse 17. The cross of Christ must be central to maintain Christian unity. And behind any inconsistent behavior in a local church or even you personally is a misunderstanding or a misappropriation of the work of Christ on your behalf. And I think that that means for Trinity, it means at least two things. First, it means that the things that we set our minds and our hearts to do are to make much of Jesus. Songs we sing, the fellowship we cultivate, the playfulness, playfulness with which we enjoy our leisure, the way we help each other raise our covenant children, the way we welcome people into our community groups, our refusal to remain silent when we have sinned against others by bearing false witness or there is confusion among us. We, we move toward each other. We make much of Jesus together. It is not easy stuff. And often it can be very, very painful, but there is tremendous comfort on the other side of moving toward each other when you try to make much of Jesus together. And second, it means we must be willing to compromise on our preferences for the sake of the entire church. Can we have preferences? Of course. You naturally will. But when your preferences cut others off from fellowship, divide the church, break fellowship, then you're breaking your membership vows that you took when you said that you would come and promote the purity and the peace of this church. And can you think of any examples where your preferences have led you to be divided from brothers and sisters? Where do your preferences cease to be preferences and become an idol of the heart? An idol is not just a wooden or metal statue that you worship like they do in paganism. An idol, biblically speaking, is anything in your life that you receive glory from, for which you've traded in your identity as a Christian primarily to receive glory from something else. That becomes an idol for you. And preferences can be, it's so easy for a preference to be held in high esteem. And Paul says, put your preferences away because you're a child of God. And where, Trinity, do your idols, your preferences for worship, your preferences for what our future building will look like, your preferences for how community groups are run, your preferences for how the preacher dresses or how he speaks, the way he preaches, where do your preferences divide the church? Where have they become an idol of your heart? And is the Holy Spirit moving in your life in that area? The question is not how are you not dividing the church? 
The question is, how are you actively contributing to the unity of this church in mind and in judgment? Many evangelical churches amidst COVID have completely gone off the ramp because people passively have not actively, they have passively just, huh. It was great. And they've kind of faded into the shadows. And as they fade into the shadows, what they see in the light is, well, they see the preacher on the screen. I really never really liked the sermons anyway. They see the worship. They see the, they're waiting for invitations to community group. Ah, it came to me on Thursday. I should have expected it on Monday. And it becomes so easy when you're separated from one another to let the criticisms of your church become far more than just criticisms. They become idols of your heart. And they, they grow bitterness. And that's why it's so important for the church to regather physically. It's because you need to see each other. You need to be able to reconcile with each other. You need, to, you need to come and you need to worship together. Hear each other's voices, shake each other's hands, give each other's fist bumps, wave from across the room. You need to be together. How are you actively contributing to the unity of this church in mind and in judgment? All of you have a gift to contribute in that way. Would you lean into it for the sake of the unity of the body of the church? There is no end to what a local church can do if we only care Jesus gets the credit. And he has given us all the tools and resources to do that. So there's no divisions. You should be united in mind. You should be united in the same judgment. And then secondly, in verse 11, we read of a new character in Scripture about whom we know very little. Chloe is her name. She is a well-to-do woman. We know that, most scholars know that, even though we don't know very little, we know very little about her because she has investments and interests in both Corinth and in Ephesus, and she has a people. And these people come to Paul and they report to her and they say, hey, Paul, there is trouble brewing in this church plant that you spent 18 months trying to start, and it's really bad. And I just think about what would have had to have happened for Paul to get that message in the ancient world. There have had to have been leaders in Corinth who did not address the issue. And there had to have been members in that church who didn't fight to maintain unity in that church. They didn't practice Matthew 18. They didn't run to reconcile with each other. Nobody said, stop arguing about who your favorite podcaster is, who your favorite preacher is. Why are we divided based upon Apollos or Paul or Peter or Jesus? And then somebody would have had, either for business interests, traveled all the way across the sea to, Cor uh, to Ephesus, or because they came specifically for that reason. They traveled all the way to say to Paul, to find Paul and say, Paul, listen to us. And it says that they reported to him. And the word in Greek for reported means a dialogue. It means that, that Paul may not have at first believed it. And so there's question and answer. They instructed Paul. They, 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 they told Paul, no, this is what's happening. And Paul gets it, and he believes it finally after asking questions, and he writes this letter to them to appeal to them for unity. So we have an application to draw for our local body now. We are to, two, number two, be alert for signs of divisions. And how are we as a local church to see those divisions? Well, verses 11 and 12 show us two signs that are evident in Corinth. The first is quarreling. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling 
among you, my brothers, again, using the word Adelphoi to appeal to the family. There's infighting, there's arguments without resolution. And when disagreements and infighting and arguments ensue in the local church, it is like cancer in the body. And when you appeal to each other to run and reconcile together, when you see quarrels and you have the strength of mind to say, why are you quarreling? Let us not divide except about the cross of Christ. When you step into that, you become like oil in an engine. Anybody ever had an engine blow up because there wasn't enough oil in it? Your reconciliation, your going to each other, your relationships together are the oil of the engine of Christ's local church. And to the degree that you're separated from each other or that you withstand or withhold um, a necessary conversation from each other is the degree to which there is, as the old oil commercial used to say, there is viscosity breakdown. And the gears grind hard. But you're the oil. You're the lube. You're what make it run. You, not me, not TJ, not Scott, not the elders. You are the oil in the engine of Christian fellowship. That's one of the reasons why our elders try to always do an exit interview for people who transition from our church. It's not because we're trying to like necessarily keep them here. No, we're trying to have an exit interview because we want to honestly hear why they're transitioning if they're staying in the local area. And we want to have eyes to see where there might be divisions that we don't recognize, even if it's with us. And so we enter into that period of reconciliation intentionally. And is it painful? Of course, it takes courage to do that. But we open ourselves up as the targets of first criticism so that we can maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we have promised that we would do that. What would it be like if we had a conflict resolution season in the liturgical calendar? Hmm? Instead of Advent or Lent. What if we had a season of restoration and reconciliation where this season of the church was a time for you to run to your neighbor in the local church with whom you might have a difference and to reconcile with them. If you're watching from home, what would it be like if you did that? Because we need you too. I would commend to you that the season that we worship through 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 4, we're, all, we're talking about unity week after week after week. Would you consider this, the season in our church calendar, a season of restoration and reconciliation? And would you pray, if there is a relationship in your life amongst a fellow Christian with whom you have difference or disagreement or unresolved conflict, would you pray about moving toward them? Okay, you're the victim. Okay. Well, let's bring a brother along with you if you've already addressed that with them. Let's ask an elder of the church to help you know how to address that particular issue. If you've wronged someone, don't wait and think it's going to go away. Move toward them in love and say, hey, we need to reconcile together. And I'm, the, I'm in the same boat. Three different families this week I talked to that are on different levels of reconciliation together. And one of them actually involves something I said that they misunderstood or that they need clarification on. And so it gave me a chance also to reconcile with them. I'm subject to this word as much as 
feel like more than anybody else in this room. If you don't have a period of reconciliation, the small things will begin to bug you. Consider this a season of freedom, and you'll grow anxious and skeptical and bitter if you let unresolved tensions grow. Now, what were the quarrels in Corinth? He explains those in verse 12. He says, verse 12, what I mean, what do you mean, Paul? Well, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, Cephas, or I follow Christ. After Paul left Corinth, after spending 18 months there, a young man whose name was Apollos came to Corinth and preached the gospel. And he was profoundly effective among the Jews. We don't know exactly what he did to communicate so effectively, but he was able to convert many, many Jews. Remember, the Jews were the ones who tried to have Paul run out of town, but Apollos came in later and he was able to share the gospel and they believed and he was incredibly effective. In fact, Paul later in the book will say, I can't wait for Apollos to come back. These are all good guys. But the church had divided based upon styles of presentation. Most scholars believe because all four of these obviously are Christians, Jesus himself being among them. People were saying, well, I follow Paul. Those are the Paulites. So I follow Apollos. Those are the Apolloites. So I follow Cephas. They're the Peterites, and I follow Jesus. They were the Jesusites. And you would think, well, option four would be the best. But people were following Jesus and sneering down their noses at other people in their self-righteousness saying, well, I only follow Jesus. And I'm better than you. And of course, we're all to follow Christ, but what was happening in Corinth is that they were using their self-righteousness to become part of the problem in their factions so that, that the Jesus group became its own party in the church, and that became an issue. So even among good things, you can divide when it becomes more important than the unity of the church and the cross of Christ. So there were favorite leaders, B. We were to be alert for signs of divisions. A is quarreling. That's the first sign. And B, choosing favorite leaders or favorite preachers or favorite preferences over others. In the remaining verses, Paul provides resources for us to number three, pursue the remedies of division. To pursue the remedies of division. Is Christ divided, he says in verse three, uh, verse 13, was Christ crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul's questions in verse 13 assume a negative response. No. And here he implies the importance of reconciliation when our focus moves off of the cross of Christ. As I mentioned a, we are to personally reconcile when we are hurt by others. We are to personally, each man and woman in this room is to reconcile when we are hurt by others. This is what, it, of course, it says in Matthew 18. It says in Galatians 6.1 and James 5.16, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. One of the reasons why you might go to a church, maybe it's even in this one, and you feel like, I'm just not growing spiritually in this church. It could be, honestly, it could be because there are unreconciled relationships, so there's bitterness in your heart, and you have a hard time hearing God's word preached because there's so much interference. And this is an opportunity for you to pursue reconciliation in this season 
of your life. Not only are we to personally reconcile when we are hurt by others, but B, we are to see the privilege that you have as God's covenant people. Notice all this language about baptism that follows. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul goes on to say, I think I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue and Titius Justus was Gaius. That was the Gentile in whom, whose home the Corinth church plant started. Oh yeah, and I also baptized Stephanus and his family. But beyond that, I don't remember. <laughs> And what Paul is saying is you're all part of the visible covenant people of God. It's linked to his use of brothers. You're part of God's covenant family. You've been brought into this covenant family. Fight for it. Don't go quiet into the night. Fight. Lean in. The church is the most beautiful thing that he has given to this world in its social structure. And you're not willing to fight for it. You're part of the covenant family. And C, Paul says, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Notice what he says at the very end. I didn't come to preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. <laughs> he kept it simple. He preached the cross of Christ. Someone has said that simplicity awaits on the other side of complexity. That is, when you understand something so well, you're, you're able to explain it in such a simple way. The great writer and Anglican theologian J.I. Packer, when he was at the pinnacle of his writing career, had written Knowing God and all these amazing books that I know have encouraged many of us in this room. Someone asked him in a conference, they said, uh, Dr. Packer, what has been the most profound thing that you have ever learned about God? And he said something so simple that even a child can understand it. That Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Friends, you are sinners without hope in this world. And your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, came to earth to live a perfect life that you could not live. And he died as a substitute for you on the cross so that he could be the perfect requirement of the law that you cannot be. So that the infinitely holy Father in heaven, when he now looks at you by your faith in Jesus, he sees you perfect and spotless just like Jesus. And the seal and the confirmation that Jesus indeed can conquer sin and death is that three days later, he rose again from the dead and he conquered death. Hallelujah. So that you might have life indeed and be brought into his covenant family and live anew because he has died for you. And one day he will return to make everything new. And the amazing good news about that is it's radical simplicity. And for some of you today, you can believe in Christ. 
And for those of you who believed for many years, again, when you come to this table, you come in faith, believing afresh. You move to this table saying, Lord, would you empower me to move toward others in reconciliation, to be an ambassador for your namesake in relationships where there's tension? Would you help me, Father, to personally reconcile, to remember the privilege that I have as a member of God's covenant people, to keep it simple? And can you do this on your own? No, you cannot. You leave here and you think, well, now I need to just muster up my effort to move to reconciliation. You cannot do that on your own. You can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that comes to you through faith and repentance to equip you to do that. It is by grace that you're able to do that. It is because Christ has first shed abroad his love in your heart that you're able to do that. And your motivation is not the reconciliation of your reputation. It is the motivation, the power is that you are motivated now, D, by the cross of Christ. That is your motivation. And so don't be surprised in this common life together if it's painful. It is painful because it is simply beyond our own self-effort. It requires ongoing prayer and forgiveness and pleading the Lord to give you wisdom. But this call to reconciliation is not only painful for us. Isaiah 63.9 tells us that Jesus himself was distressed and is distressed when we are distressed. And he gave his life to do something about it. In John 15, Jesus' prayer was clear that the connection between his suffering and our unity would be made manifest as we pursue common ground for the glorious gospel of our Lord, and that becomes our witness to the world. So, appeal to unity, Trinity. See the signs of division. Pursue remedies for those divisions and be motivated by the cross of Christ where Jesus gave his life for you. All this can be yours.